Hi everyone, welcome back to Handcraft. Today our story begins in the Horn of Africa, Eritrea, which is a country historically known to form parts of the Aksum Kingdom. Another historical fact is that Eritrea was colonised by Italy in the 1800s and many of their buildings and some cars seen today are models from the 1930s. On 1st September 1961, Eritrea and Ethiopia entered a 30-year-long conflict over the Eritrean independence fighters' cause to gain independence. During the war, Eritrean men and women fought alongside each other and women made up almost a quarter of their armies. Eritrea won the war against Ethiopia in 1991 and voted for their independence in 1993. Although Eritrea gained independence, another war was triggered in 1998 between the two East African countries. The territorial conflict was over the Eritrean-Ethiopian border, in particular the Eritrean town Badmi. The war lasted two years, ending in 2000. However, the peace treaty was only signed in 2018. During the 1998 Eritrean and Ethiopian War, Eritrean's president, and I do apologise for mispronouncing anyone's name during this episode. So the president is Isaiah Afewerki, and the ruling People's Front for Democracy and Justice declared a policy of forced conscription. The legislation meant there was a mandatory enlistment of people into the national service. Many young people were required to undergo military training before finishing secondary school. However, people have argued there are many issues that come with conscription in Eritrea, alleging that most of the time, forced conscription is indefinite, which could have a lasting impact of the lives of Eritreans. You might be wondering why I'm actually giving you a brief insight into Eritrea's history, but the history forms the beginning of a young girl's story. A young girl called Arsima Dawit. Arsima was the eldest child of her mother Tisha Hanesh and her father Dawit Haley. Tisha Hanesh and Dawit met during conflict and were serviced to the Eritrean Patriotic Liberation Front. Dawit was enlisted to fight on the front line and Tisha Hanesh was employed by the government in a transport logistics role. Due to their demanding occupations, Tissa Hanesh and Dawit could only meet up during Dawit's 30-day annual leave. They only had 30 days a year together, guys. That's like another level of long distance. But during that time, the couple managed to get married and conceive three children, Arsima, her brother Robel and her sister Furez. When Alcima was only 10 years old, her mother made a difficult decision to flee Eritrea with her children and leave her husband Dawit behind. Tissa Hanesh knew that if she stayed in Eritrea, it was more than likely that her children would be servants to the military. According to the Human Rights Watch, the system of conscription has driven thousands of young Eritreans each year into exile. An estimated of 507,300 Eritreans live in exile out of an estimated population of around 5 million. Dawit told the Daily Mail, My wife became determined to take them all to England. I was filled with sadness, but we hoped one day to be together again. Unfortunately, that time would not pass. Arsima travelled to London as an asylum seeker at the age of 10 years old with her mother, brother and sister. 
the family relocated to Waterloo, London, and Asima attended Harris Academy in Bermondsey. She also started attending the St. Michael's Eritrean Orthodox Church in Camberwell, where she became a member of the church's choir. While attending St. Michael's, Asima met a young man named Thomas Nuguse, who was also a member of the choir. Thomas was born in 1987, making him six years Asima's senior. He lived in Ilford, Essex, and was a student. Reports state that Arsima and Thomas started dating when Arsima was 13, and their relationship lasted for two years. Personally, the age difference is a bit of a madness to me. She was 13 dating a 19-year-old, so I do wonder if, during those two years, if anyone voiced their concerns. However, I don't know how real their relationship was, and we'll get to that. According to reports in 2008, when Arsima was 15, she broke up with Thomas and started distancing herself from him because she couldn't cope with his growing jealousy and controlling behaviour. Thomas's behaviour became increasingly worrying. He started obsessing over Arsima and eventually began to stalk her. On 16th April 2008, Arsima was in McDonald's with her friends, as you do, because that's very, very normal for a London school kid and probably for any UK school kid. When Arsima was in McDonald's, Thomas was stalking her like a creep. He witnessed her speaking to her male friends and was filled with rage. Thomas attacked Arsima by punching her in the face and threatened to kill her. Arsima returned home with injuries to her face. Confused, Arsima's mother and cousin, Malyon Izat, decided to take Arsima to Kennington Police Station. Reports state that Malyon reported the assault to the receptionist at the front desk. According to Malyon, when she told the receptionist about the attack, the receptionist seemingly smiled and said, why did you let him do that to you? Arsima's mother and cousin both believed the police didn't take their complaints seriously and as apparently Arsima was unwilling to file a formal complaint. Whilst Arsima's family was reporting the incident, Thomas actually sent a text message to Arsima's cousin and told her to stay out of it and not to get involved. Arsima's mother begged for the police to arrest Thomas because she feared for her daughter's life. The attack on Arsima was recorded as an assault rather than a child abuse incident or a domestic violence incident. At the time, the police stated that a domestic incident included people over 17. Therefore, Arsima was too young to be considered a DV victim. On the 12th of May 2008, a safe schools officer approached Arsima to discuss the incident. However, Arsima told the officer she didn't know about the incident and she didn't want to take it further. Asima's mother was also contacted on the 19th of May, but I don't know what information she was given. Although Asima told the officer, the school officer, that she didn't know about the incident, the police stated the investigation was still ongoing. On June 2nd, 2008, as Asima returned home from school, CCTV caught Thomas Nuguse following Arsima into a block of flats, Mathson Lang Gardens in Bayliss Road, and CCTV also caught him leaving the building shortly after. Arsima's neighbour arrived to the block of flats around 3.45pm after the school run and just 20 minutes after Arsima arrived. The neighbour called for the lift, some people call it elevator, and when it arrived they found Arsima profusely bleeding from over 30 stab wounds, mainly to her neck and other wounds to her chest and back. Thomas kept his word and murdered Arsima in a state of rage and jealousy. So how did Thomas even enter the block of flats? Because most of the flats I've come across in the UK have a security door system. There are many different ones, but essentially if you don't live in the flats and you have a key fob, you can't get in without ringing the buzzer for the house you intend to visit. 
Lambeth Council admitted that on June the 2nd, 2008, the door system to the flat was inactive. The system had been broken for seven months and the council fixed the system and issued new key fobs to the, to the residents only a few days before the incident. And the door system was supposed to be activated on the 4th of June, 2008. Hi everyone, I've got some exciting news. CrimeCon UK is still taking place this year and the only change is the dates. So open up your calendars and save Saturday the 25th and Sunday the 26th of September 2021. In order to purchase your tickets, all you have to do is visit crimecon.co.uk. Get inside the mind of a serial killer and psychopath, learn from leading criminologists, hear from the families and survivors, meet your favourite true crime podcasters, Immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend partnered by Crime and Investigation. I will be there all weekend, so come and join us. And don't forget to quote Handcuffed when you purchase your tickets to receive your 10% discount. See you soon. After brutally murdering Arsima like he said he would, Thomas took a five-minute walk to Hangerford Bridge and called 999 to confess. Thomas believed Arsima was cheating on him for the past three months. He had this thought that Arsima was telling him that she was going to church but instead she would go and see another guy. This angered Thomas and during his confession he told the operator that he would prefer to kill Arsima and kill himself. Thomas told the operator he wanted to commit suicide by jumping in the River Thames. The operator successfully talked him down and he was located and arrested. Sorry but how much of a coward are you? You just killed a child. You followed her when she was alone and vulnerable, murdered her and you think you can just kill yourself without facing justice. Nonsense behaviour. On Thursday 5th of June 2008, Thomas appeared at Campbell Green Magistrates Court and was charged with murder. Two weeks later, whilst on remand, Thomas tried to commit suicide again and he was found hanging in his prison cell. The guards were able to cut him down before it was too late. However, Thomas suffered severe brain damage. In May 2009, Thomas was supposed to attend trial at the Old Bailey for the murder of Arsima. However, due to his condition, a medical professional deemed Thomas unfit to stand trial. Since Thomas was unable to effectively communicate with his lawyers, a trial of issue had to take place. A trial of issues is also referred to as a Newton hearing. The circumstances include when a defendant has pleaded guilty to an offence, but they have confessed on the basis of a different version of facts, which leaves the prosecution and the defence with very conflicting evidence that needs to be heard in court by a judge only and that's all i know because i don't do law guys so i'm not gonna lie someone's gonna have to reach out and explain it to me in more detail but anyway a trial took place at the old bailey and the jury was still shown all the compelling evidence however the jury weren't allowed to deliberate over a guilty or non-guilty conviction they had to conclude whether thomas was responsible and after a short deliberation the jury did find thomas responsible for the murder of arsima dawit and he was given an indefinite hospital order 
I tried to find information on his condition, whether he was alive or dead or even the severity of his condition, but I couldn't find anything. I do wonder how Arsima's family and friends feel knowing that Thomas is in hospital indefinitely. And even though he's not physically well, has justice really been served? Arsima's father told the Daily Mail that in Eritrea, they believe in an eye for an eye. An equivalent member of the perpetrator's family must be killed or the family must negotiate for that not to happen. They will agree to pay for the victim's funeral, for the goats and sheep to be slaughtered for the feast and for an amount of money to be paid in recompense for the loss of life. If this is not done, a judge will try and resolve the matter. If he fails, then the family can expect retribution. The police were criticised for collective and organisational failings. It was highlighted that the receptionist the family reported the McDonald's incident to failed to escalate the threat to kill to a senior officer. Additionally, the detective in charge of investigating the McDonald's incident did not conduct an effective investigation due to a culmination of reasons such as leave, workload and relying on the school officer. Although these issues were highlighted, the receptionist or leading detective were not thought to be responsible for the death of Arsima Dawit. Arsima's mother stated, I believe Arsima's life could have been saved if the police had taken action when I approached them. Adding, my body is alive but my spirit is dead and I feel with her death I died too. It would have been better if the murderer had taken all our lives, not just our semen, as we have not been able to live our lives since that terrible day. That's so sad, man. And to know that your child was violently murdered is just really heartbreaking. In May 2009, the BBC released an article where they quoted Paul Infield, a barrister and author of The Law of Harassment and Stalking. He told BBC News, The problem for the police and the CPS is how to know which of the approximately eight 180,000 stalking cases each year are going to become murders. Risk assessment is probably the best, best way of making that distinction. For the ordinary copper on the ground, how does he know which ones to investigate and which ones to ignore? Mr Infield said, if you looked up every budding Lafario who had phoned up a girl too many times, the jails would be full. But 80% of stalkers are men and a lot of those do become dangerously obsessed. And it can be very scary, especially for young women. He said research in Britain, Australia and the US suggested that a warning or a caution from a police officer tended to stop stalking, but only if it happens before the obsessive behaviour becomes ingrained. Mr Infield added it was understandable that a 15-year-old girl might not want to press charges as she clearly never foresaw what would happen. I understand what Mr Infield was trying to say. I mean, it's not easy to be a police officer. Effective decision-making is a crucial skill to have in, in the services. And it's probably not feasible to investigate 880,000 stalking cases. I understand what Mr Infield is trying to say. I mean, it's not easy to be a police officer. Effective decision-making is a crucial skill to have in the service. And no, it's probably not feasible to investigate 880,000 stalking cases. But there are processes in place to help. And I didn't read any report that stated the police went to visit Thomas or cautioned him or spoke to his friends or family about the incident. But obviously, not all details of the investigation is going to be released to the public. But surely, if the police 
police did speak to Thomas, why wouldn't that be made public in light of what happened to Arsima? And maybe if they did, they would have received less scrutiny. In the same article, the BBC spoke to Lorraine Sheridan, a psychologist and expert on stalking from Harriet Watts University in Edinburgh. She stated, most of the dangerous stalkers are not mentally ill and do not suffer from conditions such as schizophrenia. They simply have an inability to cope with rejection. They feel the victim is controlling them because they can't get her out of their heads and sometimes they feel the only way out of the pain is to kill them. They will often then try to kill themselves. This is why I can't sympathise with the fact that Thomas is in hospital. I don't know his mental health history um, sorry, I can't speak too much into it, but I'm questioning whether Arsima and Thomas were ever in a relationship and I don't know um, because Arsima's friend Heaven Emmanuel stated during the inquest, Arsima had been telling me that this man had been harassing her and threatening her. Then one day Arsima came to school with a bruise below her left eye. I asked her what was wrong. She told me Thomas had assaulted her and also that he had threatened to kill her. The next day she came to school and was exhausted physically and said she couldn't sleep the night before because she had a nightmare of Thomas trying to kill her. Like if they were really in a relationship, I don't know, but I feel like at 15 you would tell your friends, especially if you was dating an older person, but who knows? let's say hypothetically they were together and he's already showing signs of being controlling and violent maybe she didn't want to tell anyone and then on the flip side maybe they weren't together and he misread maybe her friendliness i don't know Additionally, Emmanuel Tesfaski, a deacon at St. Michael's, stated that in May 2008, so just a month before the murder, Thomas came to him to tell him that he was in love with Arsima, but she told him she could not accept his request because her main aim was her education. The deacon also stated that Thomas continued to harass Arsima after that conversation. Thomas was probably obsessed he liked Arsima but maybe he wasn't getting the response he wanted. He saw Arsima was living her life as a teenage girl as she should be doing. She was studying, enjoying her hobbies such as singing and enjoying being around her friends and Thomas took that as rejection and murdered her. Arsima's death wasn't the first stalker murder case to shock Britain. Claire Barnell, 22, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend Michael Petch in 2005. While she was working her shift at Harvey Nichols, Michael shot her over the counter. In 2004, Tanya Moore, 26, was shot dead by her ex-boyfriend Mark Deitch. Tanya had reported her ex-boyfriend's violent behaviour to the police six times before her murder. Rana Faruqui, 35 was stabbed by her ex-boyfriend who had stalked her for weeks. Her murder was actually recorded by the 999 operator when she called for help. And one of the most recent cases we've seen is the murder of Molly McLaren, who was stabbed in the neck and head by her ex, Joshua Stimpson. He, follow he followed her to the gym, worked out in the same room as her, and then murdered her in the car park. If we think back to what the psychologist said about these perpetrators just finding it really hard to accept rejection it makes these incidents even harder to understand and even more sad than what they are these women didn't have to die and it's because of a man's ego and pride and just inability to be rejected in 2017, Arsima's mother sued the Met for £100,000 over claims that the police failed to investigate the threat to kill and failed to protect Arsima. 
However, the case was thrown out by Judge Charles Freeland QC, stating the police do not genuine, generally owe a duty to members of the public in the detection and prevention of crime. The general sense of public duty that motivates police officers is unlikely to be improved by the imposition of such liability on their duty to investigate crime. He also stated that actions taken by the police amounted to a routine expression of expectation rather than any assurance. In the absence of exceptional circumstances, the police owe no common law duty of care to protect individuals from harm by third parties. How disappointing is that to hear? That is really, really disappointing. I mean, we could be objective and obviously look at the legal side of things and maybe the judge is right in what he's saying. But at the same time, it's just if this is the response to a child's murder and a child's murder couldn't be prevented, what impact is that going to have on public confidence? That's the end of the story today. The murder of Arsima Dawit. I would really like to know your thoughts on the case. You can read up on the case yourselves. All the links to the articles can be found in the show notes. Find me on Instagram at handcuffpodcast, on Twitter at handcuffpod, or email at handcuffpodcast at gmail.com. And let me know. Bye. <laughs>